the last commercial aircraft startup, meaning founded privately by entrepreneurs to build commercial airliners, was Douglas Aircraft 101 years ago in 1921. We're literally the first one in a century. That's the voice of Blake Scholl, founder and CEO of Boom Supersonic. Blake has refused to accept the limits normally accepted by others, which is why we are all about to benefit from his commitment to making supersonic jet travel a mainstream consumer experience. This is Mike Maples Jr. of Floodgate, and it's go time with Blake Scholl. Welcome to Starting Greatness, a podcast dedicated to ambitious founders who want to go from nothing to awesome super fast. When you're a startup founder, you have to channel your inner James Bond, your MacGyver, your Wonder Woman. I'm going to help you win by curating the lessons of the super performers, but before they were successful. So without further ado, ignition sequence start. Let's get started. The Concorde supersonic jet was introduced in the late 1960s, before I was even born. And NASA found a way to walk on the moon as I was learning to walk myself in the year 1969. So when I was a youngster, I would have thought it obvious that I would one day travel at supersonic speeds on Earth and experience space travel as a young adult. But something happened in the Western world around 50 years ago. New beliefs and behaviors permeated our culture that made it seem okay for us to stop making such dramatic progress. These beliefs permeate mainstream society even today, and when you realize it, you can't unsee it. Fortunately, we are starting to see the emergence of leaders who believe in the philosophy of progress for the 21st century. I believe these startups matter not just for what they are doing, but for the movement they are catalyzing. Blake Scholl is at the forefront of this, which makes him the type of founder who represents greatness in what we can achieve when we raise our expectations of ourselves. I'm very grateful he spent the time to catch up. Let's talk to him. All right, Blake, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. Thanks for having me, Mike. Yeah, I've been I've been looking forward to this one. Your startup is not um, not the typical standard fare. Before we even get started, what's up with Boom? What are like what does Boom do? What are you trying to do? And and you know what may, motivated you to start it in the first place? Well, we are we're building supersonic passenger airplanes. You know, so think uh, Tokyo to Seattle in four and a half hours, or New York to London in three and a half hours, but be able to do it at similar fares to what would be charged in business class today so people could actually afford it and ultimately making supersonic flight both not just the fastest but also the most affordable and most sustainable way to, to, to have transportation. And the, you know, the, the backstory for me, the, uh, the, the abbreviated version is I've, I've loved airplanes since I was a kid. I've been flying for fun since I was in college, but I had a, had a first career in tech, went to school for computer science, went to Amazon you know, right as the dot-com bubble was imploding, it was a really interesting time. And so I was lucky to kind of grow up in a world where in tech, everything was getting faster and better. And I set a lifetime goal in my mid-20s of breaking the sound barrier and put a Google alert because I wanted to be first to know when I could buy a ticket and go supersonic. But it was it was crickets, um, literally no credible effort to pick up where Concord had left off and uh, to build something more mainstream that would really change uh, how tens of millions of people and eventually everybody get around the planet. And so I'd sold my, my first company to Groupon. And, uh, you know, Mike, I think you and I first met when I was doing that and you rightly passed. Yeah, but I should have kept in touch with you. 
<laughs> yeah, well, it was, a, it was literally a barcode scanning game that was basically Aqua hired to Groupon. It was a miracle that that deal could even happen and people were make, able to make even like a little bit of money off of it. But working on internet coupons uh, was approximately the least inspiring thing on the planet. And, you know, in that first company, like it was hard. It was a barcode scanning game. But I remember waking up in the morning and thinking, man, how did I get into this thing? And I'm just going to crash and burn and lose everyone's money. And I was super stressed out about it. And so when we had a chance to do the aqua hire. It was like, yeah, I should do that deal because everyone gets their money back. And, uh, and I get to, you know, I, I don't have to keep going through this, this hellacious experience for something that doesn't really matter to me personally. And so fast forward to you know, eight years ago to 2014, I sort of fired myself from Groupon and I wanted to work on the, the most exciting thing, the thing that would personally most motivate me, the thing that I would never think, why did I get into it? It's not worth it, no matter how hard it is, that that wasn't physically impossible. I sort of ranked all my startup ideas by how happy I would be if it worked, neglecting literally everything else. Like, do I have a resume for it? Is it physically possible, et cetera? And I thought, okay, well, I'm going to get into this supersonic thing and I'll get two weeks into the research and I will, I will understand why it's a bad idea that no one's doing. And then I'll move on to the next idea and I'll never have to be 80 wondering what if I looked. And then, you know, you, you kind of hinted at this a little bit, you know, you had this barcode scanning startup. What was it looking back on Kima Labs that just made it not exciting to you ultimately? And, and is there, is there some learning from that? Is there learning about what type of startups make sense to start versus not independent of the exit or the success or or whatever might happen. Yes. I mean, I knew I wanted to do a startup, but what startup to do, I started with what my skills were, not what I wanted to create in the world. And so I thought, mm-hmm. aha, I know e-commerce from Amazon. I know mobile from this other startup that I've been an early employee at. I thought I should do mobile e-commerce. I'm sure there's got to be a mobile e-commerce thing that will make sense. And then we sort of wandered around randomly, uh, pivoted the product. Like we, we shipped like three or four different products, none of which were successful. And we, you know, we succeeded in shipping a lot of things that didn't matter. And, and why do you think that is in hindsight? Do you think that that was foreseeable or do you think it was luck or, you know, what, what do you think it was? 100% foreseeable because I'm not saying this is the only formula for a startup, but if we had said, let's go create something that we want to exist in the world, we would have ended up in a very different place. I think we valued what we thought we were good at uh, versus what we wanted to create. And what a lesson I've learned from Boom is what I'm good at is very is very changeable uh, with motivation and effort. And so I, 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 I suspect a lot of people underestimate what they can learn. And so this, this notion of you know, what do I know and what domains seem plausible to attack with a startup um, I don't think it's very successful in generating, at least I didn't have any success with it Yeah, versus a, let me go find a thing I really want to exist in the world uh, that I want for myself. And if, and if I want it, I've got some judgment around it, probably other people want it too. And then I will go figure out whatever I have to figure out in order to go make it happen. And that is, it's, it's more motivating. And, it, and I think there's much less, much less risk that I would go create a product that nobody wants. Because at least one person wants it, at least I want it. I face this a lot. So I get pitched all the time. And the number one reason I pass on on a company, the number one reason is I don't think this idea is as good as you are. The downside of it being easy to start a startup is a lot of people start startups that they, they have no business starting, right? It, and it just because you can doesn't mean you should. And, and one of the things I've seen 
through this, and I don't know if this would resonate with you, but when all is said and done, the only startup failure in a real sense is not getting your time back. And it's it's like not getting your time back because you put it in the surface of something you didn't think was going to be the best possible, highest use of your time. That, that You know, like you look at something like Boom, even if it didn't work out, there was an amount of time you spend to take the risk out and to really realize whether it could happen or not happen. But even if you'd failed, that that failure wouldn't have felt that profound, right? You would have you wouldn't have any regrets. You would have you would have known that you gave it your best shot. It, it wasn't meant to be. Whereas I see a lot more people have regrets when they have an okay but not great startup, and now they've raised too much money, they've made too many commitments. And now they feel stuck. You know, they they feel stuck with a B minus idea for a few more years, and they're like, "What am, what did I just do?" Totally resonates. Yeah, and you know, the the uh, the first eighteen months were emotionally, I'll call it pretty easy, because nobody believed a startup could build supersonic jets. And I would get up in the morning. I think today is going to be the day that I find the bug in my spreadsheet. And you know, either either I was wrong about the market sizing, or I was wrong about the technology. And because uh, I couldn't possibly be the, the human that was doing this. And so it was like, I felt very free to fail. And then about roughly 18, 24 months in, it emotionally got much harder because I started to feel like, okay, if there, if this thing was fundamentally impossible, I would know by now. And now I've made a whole bunch of promises to my friends and our early investors. And, you know, once we launched the company to the world and now the pressure's on and that got, that got harder. And so when you, when you did start this, it's probably useful to even talk about the, the state of play in speed and jets, right? Because I, you know, I remember like when I was a little kid, my mom would make me wear a suit to go on an airplane, right? Like in the early 70s. How is the, how has progress in commercial airline speed changed, like say the last 50, 60 years? It's gone backwards slightly. And, and we, we sort of peaked, I would put it 1969, when we had both Concord flying for the first time and the first moon landing. And fast forward more than half a century, uh, we want a lunar lander, we want a supersonic airliner, we got to go to a museum, not look up in the sky. The last commercial aircraft startup, I meaning founded privately by entrepreneurs to build commercial airliners, was Douglas Aircraft 101 years ago in 1921. Uh, so we're, we're literally the first one in a century. If we look at kind of what happened in, in the like 60s to 70s, where we really stopped innovating on the capability of the airplanes, that was right around when the, when the last founders retired. You know, the DC-3, which was the first really successful airliner, was built by Douglas while he was still in his prime running his company. The first uh, jetliner, the de Havilland Comet, which was not a commercial success, but at least tried to be, was, was done by de Havilland while he was still uh, shortly before retirement. And, uh, and since then, the, the industry has been taken over by kind of more financial types. And what, what, what happens there? optimization. So if you take a look at the you know, Google the 707, which is Boeing's first jetliner, and then Google the 787, put them next to each other. It's a tube with wing. And the, you know, the technology, the materials and the engines and the wings and da, 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 like lots of things have been optimized. But the basic design and the basic capability, uh, you know, how, how long does it take to get from point A to point B is not any better. In fact, it's a little bit worse. So then, okay, that's totally nuts. But you must have, and, and you want to build a supersonic jet, but you must have been thinking, okay, well, why why hasn't Boeing done this already? By the way, why hasn't Boeing done this already? Like, why, why haven't they done a suit? They, they must have the technology to do this. They, they do. In fact, every single, this will surprise people. Every single key technology that we need to do over to one, our first passenger airliner, 
flew more than 10 years ago on the Boeing 787. Like we're just taking a 787, making it long and skinny, changing the wing shape and put more engines. And it, of course, there's a lot more to it than that. But from a basic technology perspective, it really is that simple. All the regulations are there. All the technology is there. And it, it actually, the, the question is an interesting one because I think it took me three or four years to actually figure the answer out. And people, like investors would ask me this and it, it would never go well because they're like, well, you're kind of saying Boeing's dumb, but you know, is Boeing really dumb? And the, the, answer, the actual answer is it's an innovator's dilemma situation. The pace of innovation in large airplanes is so subsonic that there's only one new major program every 10 or 15 years. And uh, the, the billions that get invested to build an airplane ends up being in a low margin product that has to be in production literally for decades to earn back the investment. So uh, that puts Boeing in a situation where if they went and did a supersonic airplane like we're doing, it would undermine sales of cash cow airplanes that need to be in production for decades in order to earn back their investment. So only very special companies, and I would say typically founder-led companies, are, are willing to cannibalize their current business for the future. Uh, they won't do supersonic until it's a replacement cycle product, not a cannibalization cycle product. And across the pond at Airbus, it's same same story strategically. And so then, okay, so so door number one is why not Boeing or why not one of the big aircraft companies, but why not somebody like Gulfstream or you know some of the smaller private jet companies? Well, that turns out it's a product market fit problem. One of the consequences of Concord and the political fallout, and I think it's important to remember, Concord was not a startup. It wasn't even an established big company. It was a joint right. venture between the French and British governments established via treaty in 1962, where the objective was, much like Apollo, let's show that the West can do something better than the Soviets can do it. And yeah. so you know, it's, the goals of Concord were fly fast, try not to crash and do it before the Russians. It did not have any significant commercial motivation behind it. So it's not surprising it was commercial failure. It didn't even try to be commercially successful. What happened was in the, in the 60s, there were basically three government-led supersonic transport projects. There was, the, the, there was one in Soviet Russia that became the TU-144. There was in Europe, France, and Britain on Concord. And there was a thing in the US called the SST that was defined by the FAA. It was contracted out to Boeing. And it got canceled, I think, in 1970 when it was over budget behind schedule and Concord was still coming. And at that point, the world had not yet warmed up to the fact that Concord was going to be economically dead on arrival. Boeing felt threatened by it. And there was this sort of like dual lobby effort that was, I think, behind the scenes, probably a lot of commercial interest and ostensibly was about environmental interest. And we put in place literally a speed limit over land in the U.S., a speed limit. This is one of the dumbest regulations in the history of regulation. Uh, supposedly it's about sonic booms or loud, but it wasn't a noise limit. It was a speed limit. And that thing is still in the books today. Now here's the coming back to your, your question about Gulfstream and private jet folks. 80% of business jet miles are flown over land. The, what's the market for an airplane that's not fat, that costs more, has a smaller cabin, less range, all these other trade-offs, and it's not faster 80% of the time the way we really use it. And it would cost a few billion to develop. That there's no market there. And so Gulfstream has you know, had a small supersonics team for a long time uh, researching it for the day that the rules change, uh, but they had, no, they had no business incentive to do it. The, 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 the markets were not big enough with the speed restriction. How do you hire folks for something like this in the early days? Uh, you, you know, you'd, part, part of success in a startup is you're finding undiscovered talent with unbounded upside that, that doesn't know it's impossible, but then you got to have other people 
who actually know how to make a jet because it's got to fly. Like, how did you, how did you resolve that? The, the first thing was to get educated myself, you know, so w- once I got, you know, kind of a, a few weeks into this whole thing and was like, well, this is, this isn't impossible. Like I thought it would be, holy crap. I better, I better figure out how to morph myself into somebody who would look like the successful CEO of this. And so I, I started to imagine like from the future vantage point, looking backwards, what would be the elements of success story? Like literally it's 2050. I'm on the beach sipping my ties. I had personally nothing to do with this. Uh, and so, you know, and then I, you know, it's like, okay, it would have to have a dream team. It would have to be incredibly perseverant. It has to be great at storytelling because it's going to be long gestation. Uh, it had to be great at doing partnerships because there are a lot of big fish that have to swim along with the, us little minnow, like, you know, suppliers and airlines and regulators and all that. And so you could sort of imagine the, and, and one of the, one of the things would be that the founder would have to be technically credible. And so I was like, okay, I can imagine, I can imagine somebody else, what they would have to look like to do this. Now it's my job to go become that. And so I spent, you know, before I hired anybody, I spent a year just getting educated. I, I went and took remedial calculus and physics from Khan Academy because I, I hadn't had any calculus or physics since high school. I started reading aerospace design textbooks. I built a spreadsheet model of the airplane uh, and a spreadsheet model of the market. And, uh, and after about six months, I'm like, okay, I, I feel like I'm sufficiently credible at this point that I can pick up a phone and call somebody in the industry without completely embarrassing myself. And, uh, and so I started recruiting the first few people really through recursion. And uh, I went to, went to LinkedIn and filtered by, you know, first degree and industry equals aerospace. And literally it was nothing. I had not a single connection anywhere in the industry. Uh, wow. And the best connection I did have was somebody who had worked for me at Groupon had played hockey in college with, with someone who now worked at SpaceX. And so I, I took that intro. And, uh, and I flew down to uh, SpaceX headquarters in Hawthorne, California, which the one thing I could do for credibility is at least fly myself there on a little single engine airplane that I could fly. That was my only cred. But I met, I met with him and explained what I, what I wanted to go do and why I thought it would work. And, and I, I said, if you could wave a magic wand and then you can get anybody on the planet to come work with you on this, like forget whether they're, they would do it, forget whether they're available. Who would, who would we ideally want? And I, uh, I remember flying back to, I was in the Bay Area at the time. I remember flying back and my phone's buzzing and it's got a list of names. And okay. I, met, I met all those people and I asked them the same question recursively. Who, if you could get anybody, who would you get? And you know, the, the whole six degrees to Kevin Bacon thing is very real. And so it doesn't take that many iterations before I really am talking to some of the best people on the planet. And so then it was like, okay, well, who, who should really be an early hire? And we, we did something, I did something that it, it turned out to be a pattern of a chicken and egg solution uh, to, that would, would play out many times in company history. So I, I had these half a dozen people. I needed some place for them to get together. My idea was we'll just get everyone in the same room. And if I watch everybody interact, I'll be able to figure out who really knows what they're doing and who I want to hire. And so, uh, and so we ended up getting a, a friend of mine at Sequoia loaned us a conference room. And yeah. I flew everybody out and we had a two-day jam session at Sequoia. And, uh, and the, the idea was we'd impress the investors with the caliber of engineers that were showing up and we'd impress the engineers that I might be able to raise money because at least I could get a conference room at Sequoia. Uh, but we, you know, I, watching people interact in that room without knowing all the questions to ask myself, I could see, I could see who really knew what they were doing and, uh, and who had the right attitude to be part of a startup. And so we ended up hiring two people out of that room to be the first, first two employees. What, one other story I'll tell around it. T- assessing talent outside of my own domain uh, was my, my favorite interview questions in the early days. In fact, I still do this sometimes is just ask, teach me something. 
I can assess whether someone really knows what they're they're doing in, in how they answer that, regardless of whether I know the answer myself. Uh, and so A, I learned a lot along the way, but B, uh, you didn't get hired at Boom unless you know, a, a, you were really deeply knowledgeable about something in terms of first principles and B, you were a good communicator. And so we ended up very early on with a strong communication culture. And I think that ended up being, I think it'd be very important. And I guess that's, that's probably true in general, right? If someone can explain something to you uh, clearly that reflects just a clarity of their own thinking, right? Regardless of what they're explaining. That's, that's exactly right. It, it turn, turns out yeah. it's possible to understand things without yet understanding them well enough to teach them. So if a yeah. failure of teaching doesn't necessarily mean a failure of knowledge, but it's, it does mean a failure of advanced knowledge and deep understanding. Basically all the important things about airplanes can really be understood at a high school physics level. And, and, mo but most people who go into this, they become specialists and they've got you know, three PhDs and they're, you know, 20 feet down some specialization path. Um, it, it can lose sight of the basic truths, but forcing one of the most powerful things for myself is coming as an outsider. I, I, I can't do a four-year aerospace degree. I don't have time for it, let alone have a whole second career. Um, I have to, I have to conceptualize things in far more basic terms, but it turns out that's actually an advantage, not a disadvantage. Uh, because I, I deeply understand the really elementary physics of how, how wings work versus how engines work, as an example. And uh, that turns out to be incredibly powerful in reconceiving what an airplane is and what it can do. So how do you think about getting product market fit for a supersonic jet? So it, it happened, I will say there will be, a, there was a quick phase and there's a very slow phase. The quick phase, literally, it literally took two weeks to figure out the, what, what turned out to be the breakthrough idea. Concord was a failure. It was too expensive to fly on. It was $20,000 a ticket. Not enough people can afford to fly on it. Uh, it was gas guzzler. Uh, and then the, the, the question that turns out to be the key question is how much better would we have to be than Concord on fuel economy in order to, to come in at the kind of you know, close to subsonic business class? So not economy, not for everybody, but this notion of that you're the 20% of seats at the front of the airplane that internationally you know, lie flat that are half the revenue, 80% of the profit, that's, that's, that's a big beachhead market. And by the way, it doesn't have to be a bed if, we're, if the flight's really fast, it can just be a nice seat. So how much better than Concorde do we have to do to, to match a fuel economy? All the data to answer that question is in Wikipedia and it's a three line spreadsheet. Uh, like, like one doesn't have to know anything about aeronautical engineering to go do this. And the answer was 30%. Yeah. And they're like, oh, only 30% versus something designed half a century ago with slide rules and drafting paper and wind tunnels. And then I was like, okay, well, how much better was the 787 versus the 777 that came before it, you know, like across a 15-year period? And that answer was like 25%. So it's okay, okay can we do 30% over half a century? I don't know, but it seems like the answer could be yes. And so that was, that was the original insight that this would be an all-business class supersonic airplane and that people would trade in their flatbed seats for nice, you call it like a first-class domestic seat type footprint. I, I think we can actually make a better passenger experience than that. But that's the, from a footprint perspective, that's what makes it work. And so at, the, at that point, I think that was the key thing that would ultimately have product market fit. Yet there are a thousand other decisions that go into the airplane. Like there are, there are enormous trade-offs, for example, between uh, fuel efficiency and, and range of the airplane. How far can it fly before it has to refuel? Similar trade-offs between passengers. Add more passengers to the airplane, the cost per seat gets better. But then you have to fill all the seats, and mm -hmm. so uh, so we we look at the, the the product as really being a three-legged stool, 
And one, one leg is the engineering. The airplane has to actually work and be able to you know, perform its function. That engineering has to be right. mature. But then, but then there's also the, the, the market questions have to be right. Meaning, meaning these trade-offs between range and fuel economy and passenger capacity, like those, those have to be made such that there is a large economic market that airlines can actually make money from. And then the, the third leg of the stool is passenger experience. Uh, Concord, people I've talked to who flew on it, I never did. Some of, half of them say, this is amazing. I would totally do it again. The other half of them say, it was really cool to fly fast, but it was actually like being in the back of a Southwest 737. It was super small, cramped, tiny windows, super hot, uncomfortable. You know, It was a once in a lifetime thing, not something I want to do over and over again. And so we need a passenger experience that people want to, well, people want to have over and over again. But by the way, these, these three things trade with each other. If I go make a, if I make an excessively large seat, the aerodynamics are worse. The airplane's heavier; it can't fly as far. The the cost per seat mile are worse. And so, so as we kind of go through, go through kind of development of the product, we we try to keep our three legged stool in balance, such that we don't uh, we don't ever lose product market fit, but we get it in detail. And then there's there's a bunch of you know there's the engineering maturity of it, which is fairly obvious, kind of you know, complicated, but obvious that it has to exist. The market analysis stuff, we have our own, and we basically hired the, the revenue and fleet managers from Delta and American that had done this before. And we said, great, we're going we're gonna to basically do all the analysis in-house that an airline would do in deciding how many airplanes to buy. Whenever there's a new revision of like an overture design, that we run it through this market model and it tells us, given, all, given those choices of trade-offs, how many airplanes do we think will sell? We try to maximize that, and at the, the passenger experience side, it has to get very physical. So we've built we've built uh, cabin mock-ups. We've we've sat in them ourselves. We've brought flight attendants through. We've brought passengers through. We iterate like crazy on that. We model every section of the cabin. We see what it's like to stand up in it. We run simulated services. Like we we do a lot to make sure that we're building an airplane that people are going to be happy when they get on it. And so, kind of, they're very different activities. And then every time every time the team meets, to kind of review. You know, a kind of a monthly, like, where are we in all of this? We look at all three legs of the stool. And I think that's, you know, it, 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 in success, that will be the story of, of why, why we delivered an airplane that passengers wanted, that airlines wanted, that was physically possible and made a lot of money. And so, like, what is a minimum viable product for a supersonic jet? Yeah, a great, great question. So the, the, the early concept was, I want to build the smallest airplane, physically the smallest airplane, simplest that would, would have would have a market. Um, and so the original overture concepts were actually more like 32 seats and we're up, we're up at 65 now. We concluded 65 is the right answer. And it turns out going from 32 seats to 65 seats, the, 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 the required fares dropped by a lot. The 65 seat airplane on a per seat basis is much more, much more economic. And if we believe that faster flights will drive increases in demand, then, uh, then those seats are gonna be fillable. Uh, with with actually fairly conservative assumptions, and we knew that if the, uh, in success there's going to be a competitor, it could be one of the big guys, could be a new entrant, and the obvious thing to do versus the 32 seat airplane is to build the 65, 75 seat airplane that clearly has enough demand and would have far better economics. And so if we went and built the 32 seat airplane, what we would do effectively is prove to the world that supersonic exists and it's viable, while somebody else run away runs away with the spoils. And the, and the right. obvious thing for Boeing to do would be just announce they're building the 65-seat airplane, even if it's not yeah. built yet. And then all the airlines will order it, not ours. So, so it, tur- it turns out the minimum viable product for something that is this long cycle, I think, requires 
a lot more kind of three-dimensional chess thinking like what's what uh, what's the competitive response going to be what is the what's the customer response to the competition yeah. going to be? think that out of three a few steps and make sure we're building something that it's that, that, that it's going to be very defensible the first time i ever heard about this was uh from andy radcliffe actually the person who's credited with coining the term product market fit co-founder of benchmark he used to say to me that the research shows that first mover advantage is a myth and that what matters is first to product market fit right so if you if you built a product that proved that product market fits possible but yet there's a different configuration of the plane and the product that results in time to market volume and, and getting product market fit in the truest sense of the word, the first mover advantage isn't an advantage, right? It's a disadvantage because they can watch what, what they can improve on that you did. As you go to product market fit, you're not trying to capitalize on being the first mover. You're, you know, maybe Peter Thiel would call it being the last mover. You're trying to be the first person to get the, the product prospect completely right and dialed in so that you're prepared to capitalize on the market opportunity when it's there for you and you have a product and the other guy doesn't. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, Concord's probably the, a shining example of, hey, product was built, it was first, didn't matter. Uh, it was more thud than boom. You know, And then th there, there are places, I think, where first mover advantage is real and should be capitalized on. Like It, it happens for our customers, for example. Uh, so imagine a world in which United can get uh, can get passengers across the pond in uh, three and a half hours on overture, but all the competition still taking eight, nine, ten hours. Uh, that's the kind of thing that causes customers, causes passengers to switch airlines, and so yep. that that ends up influencing our go-to-market strategy and how we how we you know, create competition for being amongst airlines to be to be early adopters in markets that matter because it being early for an airline with this confers a massive competitive advantage. You know, we haven't yet talked about the role of investors in all this. Like how do you how do you convince people to fund a company that's going to do a supersonic jet? Like what what was your seed round like and what was your what was your pitch like to your seed investors? Short answer is it took a lot of effort and still does. Um, but the 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 seed round uh, was almost exactly the same size as seed round of my first company. It was around 770K. I, I was fortunate from having exited Kima to Groupon that I, I could I could hire the first 10 or so people on my savings. Mm. And you know, but then it got to a point where it's like, I'm playing checking my bank account. I'm gonna bankrupt my family if I keep doing this too long. And so I needed to raise some capital. And there's some people who had backed me in the first company who said, you know, we love how you handled that. Like we'll invest in anything you do. And I, so I called those people and about half of them actually invested. And some of them said, I said, I'd invest in anything you do, but I didn't think you'd do this. This is crazy. Yeah. I didn't know this was in the realm of possibilities. Right. Right. Exactly. So that was about half the, half the seed money. And then the other half of the seed money was people I found who were passionate about aviation, uh, who wanted this to happen and would basically say, I think you're probably crazy, but here's 25 grand, you know, uh, good luck. And I, I think the smallest check we ever took was five hundred dollars, you know. And, th and then that felt like okay, I, I can't build a supersonic jet for three quarters of a million dollars. And and the, the overall pattern became, you know, basically raise money, accomplish milestones. And the key the key thing was accomplish milestones that are progress, but are also uh, also look like progress. Like tan what a thing I've deeply learned in this business is tangible, visible, relatable progress is essential for continuing to be able to fundraise. I'm, I'm, as we sit here, I'm 50 feet away from the airplane, 
And th like, this is the only building in the world that has an operational non-military supersonic jet. And, um, and, and for, for customers and for investors, that, that is meaningful, uh, meaningful to go yeah. see, it, see it actually working. And so, but that was, that was overall, I, I could tell a whole lot of fundraising stories and some chicken, how we solved some chicken and egg problems along the way, but it's basically ra raise, raise around, uh, use it to accomplish things that de-risk the business. And so Paul Graham was in our seed round uh, after YC. And that the Paul Graham pitch for, for Boom's seed round was, hey, if this works, you're going to be a lot more efficient than Boeing. So if Boeing's worth $100 billion, you're going to be worth at least $200 billion. Let's say you've only got a 1% chance of success. That means you're worth $2 billion today. You're selling me stock at a $20 million valuation. This is the best investment I've ever made. That's, not, that's a good pitch. But then if it, it, it works to develop a roadmap to break that down. Let's, let's say there's only a 1% chance of success. Okay, well, why? What's going to go wrong? Does the technology not work? Do we actually fail to keep product market fit? Do airlines really want it exactly as we're doing it? Do, do we build a successful passenger experience? Are there regulations there to support it? Is the supply chain there? Like, like all these things that, that one can imagine as the, the failure modes, you know, each one of those has a probability of success. Multiply all the probabilities together, that's your overall probability of success. So how, how do I get access to capital? Well, I need to systematically de-risk the business. So if I, de yeah. if I decompose my success uh, percentage into all these components, the components are things that can influence. We talked about the three-legged stool for product market fit. Have I, I, how do I know, how does a third party know I've, I've done that correctly? Well, it helps to get orders and pre-orders. Uh, yeah. And so we put... The, the original idea, we were going to be our own airline. We shelved that pretty pretty quickly because we realized we wouldn't have any proof of product market fit if we didn't have a customer that was willing to put money in. Uh, and so we, we shelved there. A lot of other bad ideas with starting an airline, but that was one of them. And so we we went after we went after pre-orders. We got Japan Airlines actually five years ago uh, to do a pre-order. Then we got United to to do the first real order with a meaningful deposit about a year ago. And, uh, and that same that same strategy kind of works for each of these component things. How do I how do I show the world that all the technology exists? How do I show the world that uh, the supply chain exists? You know, how do I how do I get proof that that when we say there's not a regulatory challenge that we're right about that? Uh, and then so those all those little component probabilities go up, and every time they go up effectively, the valuation goes up. This is just a discount off of what what the, the massive thing. I think I think everyone recognizes this works. It's massive. Uh, so that drives valuation up, improves access to capital, and we just keep iterating like that. In all of this, did you have any near-death experiences? You know, were there ever any times along the way where you where you just said, "Hey, hey, maybe, maybe this isn't going to work out. Maybe I wasn't cut out for this. I I don't see a way out of this dilemma." Yeah, I mean, I, 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 those happen with some regularity. Um, we uh, we could probably do an entire podcast just with these stories. I'll select a couple that are maybe instructive. One was very early, right as we were raising that first seed round. I think maybe we'd had our first close on it. You know, my, my emotional fear at that point was I've now promised all these people I'm going to build supersonic jets. If I don't find a way to move this thing forward and raise more money, uh, like I will have come and gone without like even had having any impact in the world. At that point, there was, there was somebody that I was pitching as an angel investor who is, a, who is an entrepreneur. He basically said, I'm a better CEO than you are. Uh, I'm going to buy your company out, recapitalize it. I've got a line on a billion dollars and I'll run the company. I'll do a better job than you would. Back then, I was super intimidated by that. It was a real existential thing. I ended up calling my closest mentor and, and like, you know, what, and said, what do I do here? And, uh, and he basically you know, said, hey, if, if you took this deal, 
what would you do with yourself afterwards? And I remember thinking that, yeah, I would have like completely sold out like the most important thing I ever want to work on. But I ultimately decided that what mattered there was to just prioritize my own happiness uh, and that I would never forgive myself for giving up. Yeah, and in retrospect, that decision you know aged well. Yeah, you know, if you if you'd given up and and this the other person succeeded at it, you would have always wondered. I mean, you'd have gotten to fly supersonic, but you'd have always wondered it could have been me. And then if it had failed, you might have wondered what it would have happened if you'd stuck with exactly. it. Exactly, like not and neither of those is a happy outcome. You know, the the world right. getting supersonic is at least happier, but the the not, neither of them feels good. And and it, and it it's, it's sort of a. I found it a very personally like self-defining moment. Like when something really matters to me, do I give up easily? Just stepping back a little bit from boom then, you know, I think we're, we're starting to see entrepreneurs go into um, opportunity spaces that traditionally would not have been seen as uh, very hospitable to tech founders, right? So Elon Musk started a car company, well, helped start a car company where, the last American car company had been Tucker and it was such a mess that they made a movie about what a, what a mess it was. Uh, you know, nobody thought you could do a car company. Nobody thought you could do a company that does rockets into outer space. I'm just curious, what are your thoughts on what can entrepreneurs learn from what some of the founders like yourselves and, you know, Palmer Lucky, Elon Musk uh, have, have done in starting these companies? So, so first off, I think it's worth acknowledging that first off, that this is happening. It's really exciting. Like when, when Boom started eight years ago, there basically were no airplane startups. And now there are like dozens of airplane startups. And, and I, I think at last count, 250 companies working on um, vertical takeoff and landing electric, which is, you know, yeah. obviously there's going to be a great winnowing of those, but that's, I think that's a good thing, not a bad sure. thing. Innovation's happening. So, but, so I think there are at least a couple layers through which this happens. Like what one is, it, is, it, it becomes much easier for founders and investors to imagine success if there's already been a success in the category. So after, yep. after SpaceX was looking like it was working, now there are a zillion rocket startups and you can go down Sand Hill Road and you raise money for a rocket startup that never would have been possible to do before SpaceX. And I, and I think, you know, you know Boom, Boom's not even successful yet. We've, you know, we've solved a lot of problems, but we've still got some big ones in front of us, but we're far enough along that it's easier to start an airplane company uh, now than it was eight years ago. And so I think that's kind of one order effect, but I, I, there's a deeper lesson that I, I, I would love to share with more entrepreneurs about avoiding the bystander effect and learning to see opportunities that are otherwise invisible. For anyone who doesn't know the bystander effect, it's this idea in psychology that uh, the more people are watching a problem, the less likely it is that anyone will do something with it. And uh, when I was, you know, when I was starting Boom, I actually lived in Oakland and and uh, the neighborhood had horribly unreliable electricity. Like PG&E would go out you know, several times a year. And uh, the, when, the, when the lights would go out, the first question everyone had was, oh, is it just me or is it the whole neighborhood? And so the, everyone would walk out in the front, por front porch, look left, look right, say, oh, it's the whole neighborhood. I'm sure the power company knows. And they go back inside and you know, get their flashlights and their candles and whatnot. And uh, PG&E did want the power company there did one really brilliant thing which is uh, their, their outage reporting line would tell you if you were the first to report. And oh, wow. what, I, what I rapidly discovered was I was the only person in the neighborhood that would ever report a power outage. And so the, the insight there is I think, it's, I think it's a bystander effect. People think when a problem is really obvious that, that either somebody really good is on it or it's actually impossible. 
And the result of that is many times the most important, actually, in some cases, most easily solvable problems are hiding out there and everyone just accepts them. And boom, boom is, I think, a good example of this. All of the technology needed for mainstream supersonic flight, needed for our business model, all of the market demand, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, existed a decade before I ever founded this company. Someone could have started it 10 years earlier. And, and why? I don't think anybody looked. Thanks, Blake. Hey, Mike. Good Have to see you. Thanks for listening to the Starting Greatness podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode or you're new to the show, I hope you listen to our past interviews with legendary founders like Reed Hoffman, Mark Andreessen, the Instagram founders, and Keith Raboy. I'd love to have you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. And if you like the show, I'd be grateful if you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow me on Twitter at M2JR and subscribe to our newsletter for exclusive content and events at greatness.substack.com. Until we catch up again, I hope you'll never let go of your inner power to do great things in whatever matters to you. Thank you for listening.